This Expert Insights podcast was recorded in front of a live audience on the 26th of October, 2016. The discussion topic is lifestyle interventions for mental health. Our panel members are Simon Rosenbaum, lecturer at the University of New South Wales, honorary fellow at Black Dog Institute and the George Institute for Global Health, and director, Exercise Sports Science Australia. Scott Teasdale, dietitian with the Eastern Suburbs Mental Health Service. Tanya Perich, postdoctoral research fellow at the School of Social Sciences and Psychology. And Richie is our lived experience representative. Our chairperson for this evening is Dr. Vera Gordon. So I might start with you, Simon. Um, The word exercise means different things to different people. When we're talking about exercise in the context of mental health, um, what does that mean for you? Often when people think about exercise, they think about getting hot and sweaty or going for a run. Um, And there's so many other options and so many other types of of movement, bodily movement that would count as as physical activity. So um, exercise is a a structured subset of physical activity. And and physical activity is basically anything we do where we're we're moving our body and our muscles are working. So, um, you know, going for a light walk, standing instead of sitting, they're they're examples of of physical activity. Um, Strength training, you know, using resistance-based options, which we can talk about. So things like muscle-building exercises all play a role and have a really important role um, and may not be as stigmatised and as difficult to try and get people to do when we're dealing with the barriers that that people experiencing mental illness have. Um, So I think the idea about exercise purely being going for a run or going for a walk or that aerobic-based exercise is something that we need to change. Um, So other aspects of physical activity when we talk about about physical activity would be things like resistance training, which I mentioned, but also incidental activity, so what we do in our, our daily life. Um, and again, that's just trying to replace you know, sedentary time, and sitting time with other sorts of activity. And just staying with you for a bit longer, um, what's your understanding of the evidence for exercise actually enhancing emotional or mental wellbeing? So, in short, I mean, some work that we've done this year is we've showed that we're probably... Well, we're definitely underestimating the effect size, so underestimating the effect that exercise has on, on particularly conditions like depression. Um, we've got a, a lot of really robust evidence around the, the benefits of exercise. Um, some of the issues, with, if you look at the research, is that um, a lot of studies have been done in environments that don't really reflect the real world. Um, so they might be, be done where they might pay participants or, or, or they might um, have an unrealistic level of support available which can't translate to the real world. Um, but what we do know is that we, we now know the, the components or the ingredients of interventions that make it effective and that make them work. So some of those factors are things like having adequate supervision. Um, and we now have got some really good data showing that if we have interventions that are delivered by trained professionals, so that's generally people with a, with a degree in exercise prescription, so that's exercise physiologists or physiotherapists, we know that that's associated with, with lower dropout and greater adherence to exercise protocols. Um, so really all the evidence says is that um, basically doing something is better than nothing. The people that benefit the most are those that are most sedentary or deconditioned at baseline. Um, and for that group or for that population, any small increase in exercise above baseline can have a really significant effect. Um, so, yeah, and again, coming back to that issue of, of, of weight loss, what really is probably mediating that relationship is, is fitness, or our cardiorespiratory fitness, which is, is basically how how functional our body is and how much we can, can deal with um, physical stress, so ability to walk or um, 
or ability to move. And so really targeting fitness as opposed to, to weight is, is a really important outcome when we're looking at, at exercise interventions. And so, Scott, um, you, you talked about kind of how you came into um, working with diet and mental health. What are some of the links you found between diet and people's mental health? Um, yeah, so I guess there's long, for a long time, there's been an association between, um, you know, and the, the type, the diet quality and people's mental health. And I guess um, it's great to say now that we're finally getting some actual um, proper design trials coming through that are actually going to show that diet, if you improve your diet quality, um, it improves people's he uh, mental health. So um, there's the SMILES trial um, from uh, the team down in Melbourne and the Healthy Med trial. It's both based around um, the, the Mediterranean pattern of eating and actually trying to show that it's predominantly in people with uh, more common mental illness, so depression, anxiety, and showing that an improved diet um, can actually improve people's uh, mental health as well. Unfortunately, in terms of the severe mental illness, which I work in, um, I'd love to say I think there's associations and, you know, I'd love to say, um, you know, improving diet can improve symptoms. We just don't know. There's really not much evidence out there um, for us to, to say that sort of thing. Um, and I, I think if you go back a long time, it used to be just individual nutrients that were looked at and tried to supplement, um, you know, whether it's magnesium, omega-3, all that sort of thing. It's sort of moving away from that now and looking at, whether you, you know, following a more healthful dietary pattern, whole food dietary pattern, compared to what we call a, um, you know, a westernised diet, where it's really highly processed, high, high sugar, high added fats, high salt, low nutrient value. And that association's been there for a long time to know that people that follow the more healthful dietary pattern have better mental health. And those that followed the more westernised tended to have um, poorer mental health. But now these, the, the two, two RCTs that are coming out um, shortly, hopefully, well, they'll be actually published, uh, actually showing that if you do an intervention and improve people's diet, you can actually improve their, their mental health as well. And I guess with a whole food dietary pattern, you're actually encompassing all those nutrients. Um, like, for example, if magnesium was... Um, uh, you know, someone was deficient in, ma in magnesium and it seemed to have a reflect in their mental health, you're, you're covering all those nutrients anyway. So um, I, I think what we know now is to move away from the individual nutrients, get a whole, whole dietary pattern that uh, covers all of that. And from your perspective, what are the common challenges for people who have mental health um, concerns in terms of diet? Yeah, so I guess uh, two, two, two points is that um, we know, uh, well, the data shows that people with mental illness, whether it's a more common mental illness or a more severe mental illness, the dietary patterns tend to be uh, poorer um, or more unhealthy than what we see in the general population. In saying that, we complain a lot about the, the general population and their dietary patterns. So um, what we know is it's, it, it's a little bit more unhealthy in anyone with um, mental illness. Um, and it's sort of that, that sort of goes in hand in hand that there's higher rates of cardiovascular disease and diabetes in mental illness. Um, and, you know, if we know that it improves... Uh, Sorry, if we know that there's that relationship and people with poorer mental health, it doesn't surprise me that there is 
poorer dietary patterns. In terms of um, severe mental illness, uh, people uh, have an additional challenge if they're taking um, antipsychotics, which actually can really increase um, appetite, um, among a, a number of other things, but are obviously needed for... Um, you know, for their mental health. Um, so that sort of combats it. So you've got poorer choices being made and it's, it's compounded by people's appetites being a, a lot higher as well. And so Tanya, I might move to you. Um, mindfulness is probably a term that most people in the room are familiar with, but maybe just to recap, what are the, the key components of mindfulness from your perspective? Um, I think the key component that I would see as being essential to mindfulness is a, it's a way of relating to the present differently. Um, so it's a way of being in the present moment non-judgmentally and reacting differently to our, our internal experiences. Um, so one of the ways in which um, I teach people to do that is through mindfulness meditation. Um, through the meditation process you learn how to practice mindfulness um, but you can also practice mindfulness not in meditation. So you can drink a glass of water mindfully, you can eat a meal mindfully. There's a lot of different ways that mindfulness can be taught and applied. And do we know um, how mindfulness improves mental well-being? I think there's a lot of research that has been done that has looked at people that are experienced meditators and done a lot of neuroimaging and that kind of stuff. And, I mean, you know, there's some kind of differences in neural pathways and that between people that have meditated for a very long period of time as opposed to those who do not. Um, in terms of people who are not meditating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like an experienced meditator would, um, I think that it just is very helpful in terms of having a sense of overall well-being, a sense of feeling a little bit more connected to the self. And these are the things that people say when they do the groups with me. I feel more connected to who I am as a person. I feel that I understand a little bit more about what's going on with my emotions. Um, so it's very hard to know how that exactly works when people are having such different experiences of meditation. And also the fact that these are so personal. Everyone has a very different experience of how they practice mindfulness and how it works for them and how it benefits them. And so, Richie, I might turn to you. You've talked about really struggling with depression for years before the diagnosis of bipolar was given to you. You must have tried out a whole lot of strategies to manage yourself and to improve your own wellbeing. What did you find helped you in terms of managing your own mood? Um, yeah, there are quite a few things. I think if you sort of... If you wanted to have a, um, I guess, a snapshot of where I was at certain times, where my mood was and where I was in terms of my physical activity, where I was in terms of my sleep and where I was in terms of my diet. Um, definitely when I was at my worst, when I have had a depressive period, for sure that's when my sleep was out the window um, and that would always trigger, I wouldn't want to exercise and also, you know, I wouldn't want to eat well. So things like, you know, emotionally eating would be the first thing that I'd want to do. Um, mind you as well, I didn't, add this to my intro as well, but I'm a personal trainer as well by, as a profession. Uh, I've been doing that for eight years. I started a fitness boot camp business and opened up 15 locations at one stage as well. So managing stress with managing team members, managing marketing and sales, and at the same time trying to manage a mental illness um, were, you know, and taking um, antidepressants, which was like putting the wrong petrol in, in your car, was, you know, I. I'm lucky that I'm here. I really am lucky. Um, and if I look at things that I did that really tried to... Um, or one single thing that helped, 
I think everything apart from actually being diagnosed correctly was quitting alcohol. And I found that that was the time that I actually stopped using alcohol as a crutch because uh, my chest was so anxious that the only thing that would actually help alleviate that in the evening was, yeah, a glass of wine. So, you know, you split a bottle of wine, then you want to keep going on a bit more. And that actually was the first time the whole day that I'd feel good about myself. So I found once I actually stopped drinking um, to the point where drinking for not just having an enjoyment, uh, but actually drinking to alleviate my anxiety and, and make myself feel better, that I actually started to be able to manage my mental illness a lot better. And then what, by doing that as well meant, okay, well, having a drunken night or something like that wouldn't push me back. You know, the next day I'd feel like getting outside, exercising, my sleep patterns were better. Um, so I'd say that that was by far the biggest, uh, biggest thing that helped everything. And in terms of your diet, um, what, what did you find made a difference for you? Um, what I've found that's kind of what um, Scott was saying is, well, what I found that's really helped is actually eating whole foods and, and cutting out a lot of processed stuff. And even now I find that um, if I can, uh, like my daily regimen, what I, what I, even what I tell my clients is to buy a Nutribullet i found that that's actually been one thing if, you know, you're time-pressed, and I do it every morning now where I just throw in kale and ginger and carrot and apple and kiwi into, and a whole bunch of um, uh, flaxseed, um, uh, chia seeds and a few other things as well, just to be, so that, okay, in the morning, two or three minutes it takes me and I've at least got everything I need to, you know, that even if I didn't eat a proper meal for the rest of the day, at least I've started the day on a good note and that kind of sets the rest of my day. And I've found that that's been one of the best things, just getting in that habit. Simon, if we're working with someone to create an exercise plan for them, what are the important ingredients? How do you go about creating a good exercise plan for someone who's perhaps not feeling great? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing to say is, so we, we have the physical activity guidelines. We've got the Australian physical activity guidelines, the World Health Organization physical activity guidelines, and they all refer to around 150 minutes per week of, of moderate activity with a bit of strength training, etc. And, and actually those guidelines are, are useless really um, because people just aren't achieving them. They're, they're completely unrealistic. If we're talking about people that are experiencing some sort of, of mental illness, or if you talk about the general population, there's barriers to being active. So you know, we don't have time, we're tired, we can't be bothered. There's, there's all these barriers. A lot of them are compounded, you know, if, if there's some sort of mental health issue, so that lack of motivation. If we then said to a client, right, you're going from nothing to we're going to go for 150 minutes a week, etc. It's completely unrealistic and it actually can act as a deterrent. Um, so I think basically the short answer is we've got to work about where that person's prepared to start and what they're prepared to do and how we can work physical activity, regular activity into their lifestyle. Um, and so simple things that, that sound a bit cliched, but you know, things like getting off the bus to stop earlier and taking a lift, in, taking the stairs instead of the lift, all those things can work, but we can't just tell people to do that because it doesn't work. We need to take it a step further and actually monitor what we're doing, measure it, keep track of it, write it down, set goals around it. Um, so an example, when I was working in the inpatient facility with the, the PTSD clients, they um, would often not want to get out of bed. And you know, If I'd go to their room and say, right, we're going to go for a walk for half an hour, you can imagine what the response was. And it was quite um, brutal at the time. They'd just say, no, get out. But if I went in and, and saying, look, we're just going to do two minutes of, of resistance-based exercises with an elastic band, um, they often couldn't argue with that because it was so quick and I'd then leave them alone. And then from there, we'd write that down. And it could be 10, you know, 10 repetitions of a, of a simple exercise. We'd write that down. They'd have something they could fill out and tick off to say they've done it. 
And then after, over time, we'd come back and, and they'd say, well, why don't we just go for a walk to the nurse's station first, do a bit of a warm-up before we do that. And so we've just built in you know, about 200 steps. And we also gave everyone pedometers so they could keep track of their daily step count. And again, the, the, similar to the physical activity guidelines, often we hear about needing ten, to achieve 10,000 steps a day. Um, and again, this is all based on epidemiological data that is actually quite meaningless when we break it down to the individual. Um, some of these guys were, were lucky to get 1,000 steps per day. So if we then tried to add 10% on to their daily step count, that's, that's 100 steps. Um, and you know, everyone can achieve that. There was absolutely, you know, there was no one that could say, well, no, I can't do that. So we could write that down and gradually increase. So I think it's, it's really important that the program is, is individualised. It's got to take into account what, you know, people's own individual circumstances, their barriers, what they have access to, um, and also what they enjoy, which is really important. If people really don't want to go to the gym, then saying to someone, go to the gym, it's just not going to work. And even if it does short term, it's, it's, not, going to be, um, it's not going to be realistic long term. In Australia, we have probably the most progressive physical activity referral scheme in the world, whereby people with any chronic condition can turn up to a, gen a GP and get referred to allied health practitioners, so exercise physiologists, dietitians, physiotherapists, and, and have five sessions under Medicare. Um, now, we're really lucky that we have that system, but it's entirely underutilised at the moment. Um, so there are professionals out there that, that can help with this, and, and they're ready to go. And, um, and Scott, uh, certainly even when we're really well, changing our diet can be really challenging. Um, how do you help people make dietary changes? Um, so I guess a, a lot of what Simon's just said actually can be translatable to what the, the diet or the, the nutrition side of things. Um, we've, we've just done a little bit of work and, and it's shown that, you know, if you've got a specialised clinician that's dedicated to helping people with their diet um, and it's individualised, um, you're much more, you're going to get a bigger effect, you're going to get bigger improvements. Um, I think everyone would probably agree with there's no one diet that's going to be suitable for everyone. And that's, I think, where, you know, this individualised approach has to come into play. Um, so, I mean, you've got to take into consideration people's likes, their cultural, in, you know, cultural norms, um, you know, their budgeted, budgets as well. Um, and, you know, changing your, your, your typical food intake, your, your, your typical daily routine can be really, really difficult. Um, and I think you sort of said it before, you know, even if you could just change one thing, just change your breakfast, even though if lunch could be really difficult for you, just change breakfast. Um, so if we look at that, you know, the, the data out there, even just small changes, small improvements in diet quality actually have big, you know, improvements on all-risk uh, um, uh, all mortality, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. So it doesn't ha you don't have to follow this perfect diet. I think that's where we just need to start working on small improvements. And actually, if you do it individualised, you can set, um, you know, you can go back to the SMART goals um, and just start setting a couple of SMART goals because um, if you tell someone to change everything about their diet, nothing's going to change, you know. But if you just say, like similar to get off the bus a bit earlier, take the stairs, if you just give them a, people a couple of set things that you think will really help them, um, actually write it down and get them to agree to change that, then they're, you know, they, that's what they can work at for the next week or two. For some of the clients that I see, you know, it might be just having, you know, uh, half the amount of soft drink that they're having, or, you know, one can less of soft drink. Even if they can just achieve something to start off with, that's perfect, and then we can build on that from there. Um, also to take into consideration is that a lot of people don't 
in this in this day and age don't you know know may not know how to cook may not have the skills and confidence in co in cooking um, food preparation all that sort of thing so you need to take that into consideration and part of what I do as my role is is something that I love doing is actually tell, teaching people how to cook and how to shop um, and we're talking the basics so I'm, I'm definitely not Jamie Oliver I'm talking the very basics where we actually you know with the Simon's working in the same program where we've got young people, they've just experienced psychosis, it's been a pretty traumatic time, um, but you know, we know the, the physical health issues can be pretty bad, so we actually, once they're you know, in the community, we, we get in, involved and we go down to the shop, teach, teach them how to do the shopping, even do the self-serve, self go back, teach them how to you know, just do some basic cooking and then they eat as a family and that's actually a really good social occasion as well. So it's, it's sort of combining a bit of knowledge, some goal setting and actually making sure people have the, the actual skills to be able to do it as well. Just on that note, I think something that, that overlaps as well is this idea about all or nothing, and you mentioned little changes, and often with exercise, people have this idea that, well, they'll do it when they're, when they're fit, when they are exercising, and there's this idea that just starting, and if it's not doing what they used to do, then there's no point, and we see it a lot in, in trauma as well, so often, you know, people with PTSD, through their background, they've been really active at some point, and then that activity's dropped off, and they, they have this idea that unless they get back to doing what they were doing, which is, you know, a, serious level of, of exercise that there's no point and that's just not the case at all so we need to try and break that down and just you know reinforce a message that, that anything is better than nothing and anything more than what you're currently doing is going to be even better so and so Tanya I might check with you um, it seems like a different mindfulness based therapy with a different acronym comes out every so often and um, there's new evolutions of mindfulness-based therapies. Um, what actually is changing in, in the world of, I guess, mindfulness-based work? Um, I think what's changing is just the variety of different programs that are available now. Um, initially, we started with, I guess, one mindfulness-based stress reduction program um, from one doctor in Massachusetts to several different types of mindfulness programs that are available, any of them ranging in price from $250 to $3,000. You can take your pick about what you want to, what you want to do. Um, I think what's interesting now is a really big movement towards self-compassion, a lot of self-compassion types of programs. So there's a lot of stuff in America that's now looking at self-compassion and a lot of different universities that are developing their own programs. Can you talk to us more about self-compassion and what that means? Um, so self-compassion is another derivative of Buddhist practices of loving-kindness meditation. So essentially in a loving-kindness meditation, you would um, show love to yourself, show love to those immediately around you, and then show love to the to the universe. So it's an the idea is that you develop this sense of common humanity. Um, with the self-compassion programs in the US, what they tend to do is is, I guess, remove that religious element and focus on cultivating a sense of showing compassion and, and loving kindness to the self. And that's something that I think all of us working with people with a psychiatric illness experience very often is that sense of um, self-loathing, a lot of judgment about the self for having a serious mental illness. Um, so one of the ideas of self-compassion is that you cultivate that sense of, of, of love and compassion towards the self. So it has a lot of real potential benefits for people living with mental illness. Easier said than done, though. Yes, <laughs> I was wondering <laughs> how, how, how you get people involved in that. <laughs> yeah, Is there a way of um, introducing that idea to people? I, I think... Um, 
It, it comes from understanding that there's no one right way to do mindfulness or meditation. Um, what we tend to find is that sometimes we get very judgmental and critical of ourselves for not doing everything perfect or not doing everything the right way. Um, one of the th ways in which you introduce self-compassion is sort of going, okay, whatever I can do right now is okay. Um, whatever I am being right now is okay. These types of thoughts then cultivate a sense of self-compassion towards the self. So I think that then underlies a lot of the thoughts about what you guys were saying about diet and exercise. People get very hard on themselves if they can't do the exercise in the way that they want to do it, if they can't eat in the way that they want to do it. And those types of thoughts and that kind of self-critical judgment can really undermine any type of action or activity in these areas because people just don't do it. They go, well, I'm not doing it. I'm angry at myself for not doing it. I'm a horrible person. That's it. Um, so when you have that door opening using self-compassion and mindfulness-based practices, you can then open the door to a whole range of other activities that you can engage in. Um, so that's how I see it. Yeah. And so, Richie, I might check with you on, on times when you feel really low and, and you, in your mind, you know, exercise really helps me, uh, but your motivation is zero. Um, what do you do? How do you get yourself to do something when you're feeling that way? Yeah, so um, I think I share probably the same train of thought that a lot of people in this room would experience, they, they've probably heard all the same things that you guys have mentioned about getting off a bus stop earlier or, you know, trying to do something and, and um, you know, different uh, nutrition tips. But really, at the end of the day, it, 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 it is just about doing something and something's better than nothing. And some days when, yeah, I couldn't peel myself out of bed and all I wanted to do was, uh, was sleep, um, you know, one thing that helped was having some accountability as well, some like a buddy or someone able to push you to get you outside. And for me, I was lucky I had my wife to two people, my wife and my dog. So um, a few years ago, five years ago, we bought a black dog for my black dog. And he's been the best thing for me, not just because I work from home all day and he's always around me, but also because I need to take him out. And so for me to actually take him out has been, it's therapeutic just having him around all the time, obviously, but also that forced having to take him out takes my mind off things. So I might be pent up in my room or in my desk all day, just in my head, but then getting outside, walking around Centennial Park, doing the coastal walk, they've been some of the main things that I've had to do. I might not necessarily want to be outside and go to the, go to the gym, have a real sweaty workout, but just actually being outside walking and, and not being in your room or inside has been one of the biggest things that, um, that's helped me. Um, I think um, also it's just one of the things that you were mentioning as well, uh, Tanya, with self-compassion, that's been actually one of the hardest things that I've had to learn as well, just whether it's been expectations I've had with myself and my business and where I am at certain times. And I think as this is, you know, really it's only a few years old that I'm, I'm learning all these things about myself. So every winter that goes past, winters have always been a, like the worst times. I, I dip dramatically during those periods. So now the last winter, I didn't have an episode, I wasn't depressed. The period before wasn't as bad. And each year I start to learn, or each day I seem to learn a bit more about myself and how I handle things, what the patterns are. So I think, um, you know, understanding that when I'm stressed and when I'm not necessarily feeling great, being able to walk away from that and be able to go, okay, look, just because I can't get something done today doesn't mean I'm a failure. Doesn't mean that, oh, if I don't exercise today or I don't want to do something, doesn't mean that at all. It means, hey, look, this is what's happening in my, in my head. It's, a ment it's part of me. It's going to pass just like a wave does. And I just need to manage that and ride it out. 
So I think understanding that and thinking sometimes to myself, go, look, you know, I'm okay. I'm, everything will be okay. And, you know, I don't need to necessarily, today might not be the most productive day, but that doesn't mean, you know, tomorrow I start fresh and tomorrow's a new day. So um, I think that's been one really, I guess, big obstacle that even, you know, every day I'm trying to, trying to get better at as well. Throughout South East Sydney now, we've actually got exercise physiologists, dietitians as part of the mental health team now. So actually you've got the psychiatrist, you've got the um, clinical psychologist, you've got the social worker, you've got the key workers, you've got the dietitian, you've got the exercise physiologist. It's, what we're trying to show in that model is that it should be just a standard part of care. Um, and, you know, predominantly it is, as Simon said, around the, the cardiovascular area or the, you know, cardiometabolic risks and that sort of thing. But with such, you know, uh, so much evidence coming now, particularly exercise is well ahead of um, diet in terms of mental health and, you know, you know the, the potential for to improve mental health um, and psychotic symptoms and that sort of thing as well. But um, I, I think our model's sort of showing that, you know, it can work, you know. The psychiatrists will say, you know, do what they need to do and they'll say, OK, they'll, they'll talk about the side effects and they're like, perfect, we've got the dietitian, you should have the, you know, have a session with a dietitian and get some follow-up with them around the potential weight gain and all that sort of thing. And then the, we do have the, the private... Um, uh, dietitians and exercise physiologists that you can refer on to as well. We don't have all the answers, but we're, it's, look, we're moving in the right direction as well. I think the integration point is really important. It's about integrating and treating these interventions as therapeutic interventions. It's not a diversional strategy that if you've got time, um, if you want to, go do this. It's, it's actually part of treatment. Um, and, and because it's the idea, that, and there's a lot of... Um, the stuff around if we had, you know, if there was a pill that, that gave you all the benefits that, that exercise and a healthy diet could offer, you know, it'd be the most widely prescribed pill in the world, and that's true, but the problem is we have to make people take that pill, and we've got to have the systems in place where, where, where they're facilitated to do that. One thing also, um, Scott, what you were saying in terms of trying to get other people, like a, a combined approach as well, um, I guess when I was diagnosed, I guess I was, you know, after finally figuring out what it was I had, I knew I could probably do two things on it. I could, you know, just um, let this control me or I could actually start taking control of my life again. So for me, the, one of the, I knew that, okay, I came here, I had the black dog on my side, I had a good psychiatrist, good psychologist, I had my wife, I had my dog, I had my family, I had my friends. So I started to build this sort of dream team of people to support myself so that I knew that it wasn't just one thing that was going to, um, you know, get me better and manage it. It was, it was going to be everything. It was going to be a whole lifestyle overhaul. So one, I think, a big part there in terms of, like, a game plan of things is also educating people that they really need to be proactive about do, what they do. And, and it's not just as simple as taking a pill and, you know, that's going to fix everything. Because I think probably in, not just in this, but in... in um, I guess in everything, everyone wants the pill because that's the, the easy solution. They don't understand that, okay, changing your lifestyle is the big thing that impacts everything. But, you know, it's also the thing that's going to, you know, probably require the most effort. One of the things that's been so successful at, at Bondi, as an example, is that everyone involved in that person's care is on board with the exact same message. So when they walk into the centre, everyone from the psychiatrist through to the receptionist at the front door is saying, oh, are you going to go to the gym today? What did you have for lunch? 
and reinforcing that message. And we know from a health professional perspective that, you know, for example, a doctor who smokes and tells a patient to quit smoking, that, that doesn't quite work. And it's the same with role modelling other healthy lifestyle behaviours, so exercise and diet. Um, if the, the mental health professionals or the health professionals actually believe in what they're, they're promoting, you get a far better outcome. And so as part of the, the rollout of our program at South East and Sydney Local Health District when we got the new EPs and, and dietitians, we actually initially held them back from seeing patients and we just targeted staff and we ran a, a complete um, intervention for the mental health staff where, where they got access to the exact same intervention that a patient would get where they got four weeks of, of treatment so they could see the dietitian or the EP for four weeks and we measured the change in their, their attitudes and also the impact it had and, and they did manage to lose a bit of weight among the staff but it had a huge impact on, on how they viewed the importance of these interventions. Because we've got to keep in mind that it can be quite confronting if, if you know, for, for staff as well, if, they, if, if they're not active themselves and they don't, you know, it's not something that they necessarily um, prioritise for themselves, that then promoting it to a, a client can be, can be difficult. So I think it's really important that we get the right message to, to staff around why and, and, and what, that, what we're talking about. You know, if I was going up to someone who is hospitalised because they're experiencing this severe PTSD and I'm saying, hey, you want to exercise, um, of course, the answer is just no, go away. So you've got to, like, the most important thing, this is what I often tell the, the EP students, is that you've actually got to build some rapport and have a relationship with someone because you're trying to get someone to do something they don't want to do. Um, we need to use a lot of um, education around why we're asking people to do stuff. It's not just, you know, so again, that's that idea about getting weight just out of the story completely. It's not about weight. Um, it's about, you know, what's important to that person. Is it walking up the stairs a bit easier? Is it, you know, sleeping a bit better? The other benefits that they can possibly get. So, you know, we just have to keep in mind that the default answer is no. We've got to, you know, I think it's our job to, to, to help people to, to want to exercise and, 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 you know, diet as well. And I think we've, you know, done a lot of research around motivation and autonomous motivation. And we know that if, if we want people to be active and maintain that active over the long term, they have to be autonomously motivated. So they have to exercise because they want to be exercising because they value it and they see the benefits. So unless we get people to that stage, um, we, we, we don't, we're not going to have much luck. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was listening to what, um, what you guys were saying about doing the program yourself. And I think for me, as a, I see myself as a mindfulness practitioner first, before I'm a psychologist, before I'm someone that teaches it. So when I'm teaching people mindfulness and meditation, I'm talking about my own experience of learning. And that is the hardest thing is to do it yourself at home. Um, so when I talk to people about this, I say, well, this is the kind of stuff that helps me. This is where I've got five minutes on the day. I've, I've got time on the train. I've got time on the bus. I've got time here. So really thinking about your own practice and, and where you're struggling can really help that person try to figure out where they can fit that in in their lives. But yeah, again, it's learning the benefit yourself and going, this really works, this really helps. <coughs> I mean, I've been practising mindfulness now for over 20 years. This, this is an essential part of who I am, in addition to diet, in addition to exercise. Um, so for me, going without it is like going without air or without water. It's just such an essential part of my being. So I think it's communicating that enthusiasm and that excitement about what it is that you do and knowing that it has benefit, in addition to all the research evidence, of course. <laughs> but it's that personal, I think, benefit that, that excites me. Yeah. The mindfulness on the train, say, for example, what do you specifically do? Well, I, it depends on the train line and where I am. Um, so I get a quiet bit because I work out at Bankstown, I'm at, at Milpara campus, so I've got a quiet bit between Walleye Creek and Riverwood, which I've got a nice silent meditation that I do there. I close my eyes, I, I, I do that kind of thing, do the 
watching the breath, so I've got a nice stretch there. Then once I've got all the train noises and all the different noises, I can do a mindfulness of sound meditation. So all I do is just observe all the different sounds as they come and go in my field of awareness. Um, so there's a whole different range of practices I can do depending on what, what situation I'm in. Um, so when you do a, a structured mindfulness program, you learn all these different techniques. So part of what you do in the program is, is just get a bit of a sampler um, so that when people are out and about, it's not they just haven't got one technique they can use. They can use anything. They can just do mindfulness of sound, mindfulness, what do you see? Look, look mindfully around you. Um, so there's a whole, a whole range of different strategies you can do. Uh, I struggle with this as a researcher because I know all the research evidence. Yeah. So I could go on for 25 years about how it works. Um, you know, and one of the things I did last group was actually give people a research study that showed after an eight-week intervention, you've got changes in the brain. There's MRI studies that show they've looked at the brain beforehand after there are changes. Um, so it's not something that people imagine. And I think that's something that's quite difficult with mindfulness is it's so intangible. People go, am I even doing it right? How is it that I'm getting any benefits? So that kind of stuff is really difficult to address, even with the research evidence, because people are still kind of not really believing you. Um, and that's where, again, it comes back to my personal practice in terms of this works, I know this works because I do it. I see these benefits. I don't just read about them in the literature. Yes, we know it helps with reducing cortisol. Yes, we know that um, it helps with reducing stress, anxiety. It's helpful for people with depression. We know all that literature. Um, but when you experience it yourself, you can, you can see the benefits. And what I find so interesting and what I tell people before I, I teach them is that, look, I know where the literature is, but I don't know how this will help you. This might help you in a really cool, interesting new way that has not yet been discovered. And that's what I find really exciting when I teach people, is that people come and they go, I got this out of it. You know, I got this. You know, I mean, there's stuff that we don't measure that people get out of this. So I think when you're teaching mindfulness, it's really about the exploration. Give this a go. See what happens. See how you benefit. Observe how you change. Because that's where you will see, where you'll see the change, is in that personal journey that you have with this practice. Can I just add as well, and I'm definitely not I've not done a PhD in this area, but I, I, I understand some of the literature probably, um, particularly around mindful eating and, you know, for its use potentially when, you know, emotional eating, binge eating, um, you know, even with some of the people that just, um, just fast eating syndrome and that sort of thing. And so part of what we've done in our kitchen at Bondi is actually turn it into a mindful eating kitchen. Um, and that's what it was sort of a bit of an exploration. I'm like, I, I don't know that much. I'm not an expert in it, but I, I, I know this would work. Let's try it out. So in our cooking groups, that's what we do. We actually do it all together and just say, okay, you know, let's, let's try and be a bit more mindful when we eat. Let's try and slow down. Let's be in the moment. Let's, you know, no distractions, all that sort of thing. And people are finding they're eating slower. You know, they're actually comments, at the, the immediate comments are like, oh, I didn't realise it's that much flavour in the food because you have a, a small bit of chocolate or something mm -hmm. and it, if you just sit it on the tongue, it's like, oh, because it's normally bite, chew, swallow and um, you, you lose a lot of the flavour. So um, I think the fact that we actually get to put it into practice and people actually notice, you know, if we slow down and enjoy the food more, you get more out of it. I definitely use it. So we, in, in the inpatients, so these were severely affected group, um, we gave them pedometers. Um, often what's interesting is that they would say, oh, no, I'll put that on when, I'm when I start exercising again. It's like, no, you're missing the point. You put this on now so that you will do more. Um, 
And, and so it's just breaking that, that mentality. Um, and and you, even just by wearing it, it is an intervention. People do more. So it often drops off and then it, they actually don't do much long term. But I think it's a really good way of actually monitoring those things because those, those cliches like, you know, telling people to get off the bus earlier, people don't do it. I mean, it is a, it's, a, it's, it's great to say it, but no one's going to actually do it if they've got something to show for it at the end of it. So if they know that, well, they're getting 1,000 steps a day, they need to get 1,200 because that's what their goal is. If I get off that stop early, that's my 200 steps. There's a reason for doing it. So I think it's really important. I think the monitoring, you know, wearable technologies are so socially acceptable now um, that, yeah, I'd absolutely be encouraging it. And same with the, I was just going to add, same with the food. As soon as you tell someone to start writing down what they eat, bang, change what they eat because they don't want to report something that they think they shouldn't be eating. So. I'm lying. Yeah. <laughs> or you can lie. <laughs> but I think because all, you know, misreporting, underreporting, like I'm well aware that, you know, a lot of, you know, majority of people do, do that, you know, whether they forget or they, you know, don't want to tell you the wrong thing. Um, and, but I guess as soon as you get in your mind, oh, I've got to start writing down, you, your mindset change and, you know, whether it's the same as having the, the, the Fitbit or whatever you're wearing, you just instantly your mind changes and you go, oh, I've got to eat better, you know, I've got to move more because I'm getting that. So even just, yeah, writing down or recording what you eat, all of a sudden food changes. So. I think also one thing... Um when they, like writing down what you eat, I found that that's like, it's obviously easier with a wearable because it's just at the end of the day, you can either check your phone and it might say how many steps you've done or even how much sleep you've had. But I found that um, clients to be able to write down what they eat is often a difficult thing because they probably think they've got to do that forever or they're not going to remember. So even I just say take a photo of the food that you eat, you know, at least there you can actually see, look back for the week and you say, look, hey, you're not going to track it forever, just track it for a week. Just see what you eat on the week and what you eat on the weekends and just see how that varies. And then you can have a look at that, say, oh, look, your portions, maybe replace this with that. And sometimes it's just easier. Everyone's got their smartphone. Takes them 30 seconds to take a shot of what they eat and, you know, rather than having to like, oh, what did I eat? Oh, I forgot to do it today. I forgot to do it at lunch and, then, you know, it's the next day and then you forget about it and then you skip a day and it's too difficult, so... And if you're chatting to someone just on what you're saying with the smartphones now, I think it's great because if they're taking photos and then you're actually going to chat to someone about it, it gives you so much more information to go off if you're looking at the photo and you can look at the portion sizing, you can look at the different types of food, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, very, it's, a, it's definitely going that way where you can just take photos now. There was one study published earlier this year that <coughs> was quite amazing. They took a, a group of healthy young men um, so no mental illness, they were healthy, young, active men, and they put half of them and told them to stop exercising for a week. Um, so they gave them monitors and said, keep your step count below 5,000 steps, don't do any structured exercise. The other group, they just gave them the monitors and said, do whatever you want. And what happened, interestingly, was the control group, so the guys who just got given monitors and told to do whatever you want, they did a little bit more exercise that week, which we'd expect because they were given monitors, and their, their depression, their mood actually got a bit better that week. Whereas the intervention group who were told not to exercise for that week, um, their depression levels went right up high for that week and then returned to normal when they were able to move again. And so it's really nice evidence of this dose-response relationship between sitting, so sedentary behaviour, and, and mood. Um, and I think the whole field is starting to look at not just promoting exercise, so moving away from saying, look, it's all about moving, to actually just saying, let's look at how sedentary you are and actually replacing that sedentary time with anything else. Stand, you know, instead of sitting. You know, when the commercials are on, stand up, go for a walk around the house. 
um, because I think there's a, a lot emerging that, that actually just that sedentary behaviour induces you know, poor mood. I might just check with you, Tanya, thinking about bipolar and the more biological mental illness. Does mindfulness have a place in helping people with a more biological presentation or is it mainly for sort of stress and personality type depressions? Um, no, I, I think it definitely has a place um, for helping people with bipolar disorder. Um, in my research, I found that it was really helpful in helping manage state anxiety. And there's been a lot of other studies that have used mindfulness for people with bipolar disorder. Some people use it with people with schizophrenia as well. Um, so I, for me personally, I think a lot of it has to do with the sense of well-being that you get from practising mindfulness and incorporating that into your day-to-day -day life. And I thought it was really interesting um, what you guys were saying when you can't exercise as much. And the first thing I think is, well, if you've got a mindfulness practice, you've still got that. <laughs> um, so I think for me, part of living well with mental illness is having a whole range of different strategies that you incorporate, including diet, exercise, mindfulness and, and you know, uh, creative therapies as well. So, yeah. Um, and is it at a particular phase of the illness that it's best to introduce the mindfulness or really across all the phases? I think if people are very um, at the lower end of the spectrum, I, I don't think that's a good time to learn mindfulness. I think it's better to learn it when you're reasonably well. Um, for some people that might be hard to find a time like that. A lot of people say to me they're quite tend to be quite up and down, but provided you're not in an acutely manic state or very, very, very depressed, I think you should give it, a, give it a try, absolutely. Please join me in thanking our fabulous panel for such an interesting evening. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.